Making the Media is a podcast from Avid that recently celebrated its 50th anniversary, and Craig Wilson is its host. Just like this podcast, Craig has had conversations with some very interesting people across a wide cross-section of the media industry. He's intersected some key issues along the way, including the expanding use of artificial intelligence, future-proofing newsrooms, a skills shortage, and emerging platforms. I'm Michael Depp, editor of TV News Check, and this is Talking TV. Coming up, a very meta episode of this podcast via my conversation with the host of another media podcast, Avid's Craig Wilson. We'll be right back with that conversation. This episode of Talking TV is brought to you by Futuri, which provides today's broadcasters with tomorrow's technology. That includes podcasting system Post, which can extend your newscast's reach by automatically turning it into a podcast in a way that requires little to no work from your team. Learn more about Post at futurimedia.com slash post for TV. Welcome, Craig Wilson, to Talking TV. Hi, Michael. It's great to be here and good to see you again. Good to see you. Craig, your own podcast intersects a number of tech issues, but the one that rises to the surface most urgently of late is AI. Now, of course, AI has been around in broadcast for many years, and it has largely been beneficial in areas like speech to text, translation, and compliance monitoring. But talk has become more sinister around AI in terms of supplanting journalists and perpetuating disinformation and misinformation. Where are you seeing concerns about AI evolve? Yeah, I think you're right, Michael. It's, it's the one topic that I think bubbles up, you know, everywhere you go these days and everyone you talk about, you know, has a, has a view and, and an opinion on it. And it's interesting, you know, as you mentioned at the start, you know, we've, we've now done 50 episodes of the podcast and we actually talked about AI in the first season of the podcast a couple of years ago. And then we've revisited it again in, 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 this, um, in this season. And it's interesting how the views of things have, have changed. So I think depending on who you speak to, some people are incredibly enthusiastic and positive about what AI can potentially bring in terms of a tool which can assist journalists, for example. So it can take away some of the, you know, perhaps time-consuming tasks that they perhaps would do to allow them to focus on that creative element that perhaps AI itself can't, can't actually do. There are many doom-mongers within the industry who say, well, actually, this is going to get rid of swathes of journalists because it won't be you know, needed to, to do certain work. And I think where it's putting some emphasis now on is what is it that the journalists um, the, themselves brings to the product? It's that analysis. It's that ability for critical thinking and questioning. And so actually, you know, it can provoke a different kind of conversation about what AI means for journalists and actually as a tool to assist them. I think the other thing I would say about AI is I also think there's a lot of caution within the industry about what AI actually means. And I think we're beginning to see that where people are concerned about what models the AI has been trained on, for example. What does that mean for copyright if it's been trained on publications or trained on, on articles uh, from certain areas? So I was recently at um, an event in, in Berlin where AI was one of the topics among leading broadcasters there. And the main thing that came through for me there really was about caution. 
Yes, it's an exciting area. Yes, it's something that everybody wants to look into. But let's hang back and let's take a look at what it actually means before we go in and, and implement things. So I think it's one of these ones where, yeah, hugely exciting, lots of possibilities of what might come, but a degree of caution about actually what implementing is going to mean. It does seem like the generative side of AI is the real red zone, whereas the 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 other parts of it, you know, the transcription services, for instance, that's where where you know you don't really have a lot of controversy there. But the generative side is where you can get all sorts of trouble, including kind of encroaching on the journalist's role and the disinformation, misinformation, perpetuation going on. Yeah, I would, I would completely agree, and I think it is on that generative side that there is this, this real degree of caution about what does this actually mean for, for the industry. And I think not just from the, the perspective of, um, you know, script writing, for example, or, you know, journalists writing stories, but also around imagery, you know, the use of images, how those images are created and, and, and are they real images, you know, is, is, is the other thing. I think we've all seen, you know, some examples on social media in the recent months um, of images that turn out to be fake. Um, and I think, you know, another element of the podcast has been talking to people about, you know, content authentication and trust in journalism. Um, and I think that's where, again, people are looking for, um, if I am working in a journalistic environment, people have to have trust in the content that we are producing, whether it's on broadcast or, you know, on, on social. Um, and I think that's where brands will, will obviously be, come back to that, caution, that cautionary element of, utilizing things like generative AI, because what will it actually mean? What does it mean for the future of, of, of journalism? What does it mean about trust that audiences have um, uh, in, um, in news outlets and producing content as well? So definitely, to go back to the, the point you were making about you know, the, the ways that AI can perhaps assist journalists, you know, other things are, you know, if you take an example of something like the Panama Papers, you know, a lot of AI tools were used there to analyze enormous amounts of information to try to uncover common themes that, that come out from it. So it's those kind of uses that I think people are trying to explore now about how it can assist the journalists. Um, and I think in those ways, it can be very beneficial. But you're absolutely right. That's that whole generative area. There is a, a huge amount of caution within the industry about. Right, right. Now, among broadcasters, fast channels, it has become another extremely hot topic. Why are they so fascinated by it? And what do you think is going to happen next in that sphere? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's really interesting about, about broadcasters is that I think, you know, the vast majority of broadcasters now, they, they of course have got some kind of social presence. They have an online presence that they already have. Um, but in the broadcast space, um, they have, there are only 24 hours in a day. They perhaps have their main broadcast channel, and that's what their forecast is, their, their, is the forefront of their operations. But a lot of them have now built up very, very large archives of content. And I think what people are trying to make sure is that any opportunity they have to monetize the archival content that they have is, is taken up. And in the past, if you were going down the route of a traditional broadcast channel, that was actually something that was quite complex to do. Um, it required a lot of work, a lot of regulatory work to actually get that up in place that probably diluted the benefits that um, you potentially would have from um, you know, creating the, and distributing the content. So I think why people are so interested in fast channels is the ease with which they can be, they can be set up. 
the fact that they are um, advertising um, supported, so there is an income stream that, that, that's coming in um, uh, as part of that. And actually, the, the cost of the content that they're actually delivering, to an extent, has already been covered because a lot of it is archival content. But I yeah. do think there is a, a slightly separate element to this, which is I think people are looking at now at, in addition to that archival content, what happens if I actually begin to put out new content on these channels? Is this a way of your know, furthering engagement um, that I can have with the audience by, by delivering that? And I think that's where people are trying to get to now of what is that balance between new content that we, we perhaps create specifically for that balanced with, you know, I've got all this archive content that, that there is an audience for. Well, what's the feedback you're getting on that front from those who are making forays into original content? I know we've both talked to folks at the CBC, for instance, where they were launching the CBC News Explorer, which was all bespoke for that channel. Is it, are they getting an ROI soon enough? Are they seeing traction and viewership? Because it is a very fragmented landscape when you're on fast. You have to iterate on all these different devices. It's, it seems like you have, it's a little bit tougher work to aggregate an audience there. Yeah, I, I agree that it's a, it's a fragmented marketplace. There's no doubt about it. Um, but I think we're seeing huge growth of fast, not just in the American market. I think we're also seeing it here in, in, in Europe um, as well. Um, and I recently spoke to you know a couple of people. You, you mentioned the, the, the CBC there who've obviously gone down the route you know, with their channel as well. But, but with others, um, and I don't see any um, deceleration, if you like, in the interest in, in setting up fast, fast channels. I think they are seen as a convenient way um, of getting the content out. And I think they're also seen as a way that it's, its ability to spread the brand perhaps into different audiences that wouldn't traditionally come to a broadcast channel. You know, I think one of the things is, as you know, Michael, that, that comes up a lot within the podcast is, you know, being where the audience is on whatever platform that, that has to be. And that is the big challenge that I think broadcasters are trying to address everywhere, particularly when it comes to younger audiences who, you know, traditionally now are watching less and less, you know, traditional television. I mean, I still think that broadcast television has a place. It's certainly still a significant um, income generator for a lot of broadcasters around the world. We'll maybe talk about monetization and other platforms, you know, as we as we go here as well. So still very much core to their business, but I think they're just looking for other outlets where we can take the core content that we already have and we can actually then repurpose it and through repurposing it, spread the brand and hopefully generate further income from that. Right. Right. All right. Let's move on. One of the things you've tackled in your show is TikTok and how news organizations seem to be drawn to it like a moth to a flame increasingly, but they aren't getting any revenue for their trouble there. So so let's touch on that a bit. First, who is emerging as really getting TikTok, really nailing it and understanding it on, on the news front? And, and what are they doing that jibes well with what the platform is all about? I think one of the really interesting things about, about TikTok is a number of years ago, if you, if you spoke to people, what were they trying to do? They basically thought, well, we can create content once and we can just then be it. We can just put it out on whatever platform and it will be it will be successful. And over time, people realize, correct, exactly. It just doesn't work at all. And I think TikTok, if you like, is the sort of pinnacle of that because when TikTok first emerged, if you'd said to people that, you know, in a couple of years' time, this is going to be one of the battlegrounds for news, I think people would have thought you were off your head. But I think what's happened is that because of the nature of the audience that, that's there, 
And because of also, I think, younger people coming into the media and broadcast industry, utilizing it, they all have it on their phones, that it's, it's gained a bit of traction. Now, I, I talked in the last answer about trying to find audiences wherever they are and trying to find new audiences. But I think there's another aspect to this, which is that the way that people consume news has really changed to the extent that I think people at times don't actually recognize they're actually consuming news. They're just watching something that's on whatever platform uh, it is. So to go back to TikTok specifically, I think what, what's happened here, um, and speaking again to a couple of customers on the podcast, is it's a right source for innovation. People can experiment and they can try new things. Um, and that then offers them an ability to then perhaps talk about different issues, perhaps talk about different angles within a story, present a story in a different way that actually attracts an audience. Because certainly for TikTok, it's a very specific type of audience that you're, that you're looking at. I think we've seen huge innovation in this. I know, for example, ABC News in Australia, they've done a whole kind of incubator project on this through their innovation lab. It's a big focus for the BBC here in the UK. I think in the US, um, I think it's uh, one of the newspapers in the US, the Washington Post, has built a very large sort of TikTok you know, following, actually with very few staff members involved in that. It's a very small team that they actually have, but it's able to actually drive um, a lot of people to, um, to it. And I think the reason that they're doing it is, you're absolutely right, they're not making money from it. Most of us are commercial organizations that want to make money, or if you're a public service broadcaster, it is about reach, it's about reaching the audience um, wherever they are. But ultimately what they're interested in is driving people to their own properties and using TikTok to an extent, perhaps like a lost leader in that sense, of saying we are on TikTok, but if you want to find out more in depth, you know, come to our website, come to our social pages, come to our um, broadcast properties to actually then find more information on that. And I think that's why there's such an interest on it because the nature of the audience means that you know traditional broadcasters are not reaching that audience in the normal way that they would have done in the past, and that's why they're so interested in it. But yeah, on that lost leader front, I mean, we're over a decade into every social platform, one after another is a lost leader. And every you know media company has to devote a certain amount of resources, labor hours to it. Do you find that any exhaustion, fatigue uh, is setting in among uh, media companies around this dynamic that social is always just a drain on their resources? It's an audience builder, but only that, and it's got next to no hope of real revenue ever coming in. One of exhaustion is the right the right word. I think there's an acceptance that it's just part of the beast. I think it's just part of the industry. Yeah, I think it's it's just part of what they have to do. And I remember a few years ago speaking to a, um, um, a customer here in the UK who does a new show, and their audience was perhaps say you know three hundred thousand on a on a regular kind of even basis. But they had done something. I think in that case it was for Facebook that had got say ten million views. And we find this really interesting, but they couldn't really figure out why this particular story had resonated so much with their sort of Facebook audience. So I think what people are trying to do now is they're trying to use the analysis and analytics they get. I mean, YouTube is a great example of, you know, you can see exactly when people drop off if they're watching a particular program or a package, and you can then use that uh, to perhaps analyze and to do everything else. Um, 
One uh, other example that I would give, um, you talked about exhaustion or resignation about it, is that someone talked to me once about repurposing a story. They had a very exclusive story that they then went out and created something like 15 to 20 different versions of it for all of the various different platforms. And they said that you can fall out of love with a story if you're having to do all of those those different different it's a versions. Lot of versions of it's a lot of versions of a story and you can understand by the end of it that perhaps you don't love it as much as you did when you first got the excitement of of the exclusive that they were working on so to, to go back to what you're saying I, I do genuinely think i think it's just part of the acceptance now that it's part of the package of what they have to do the big one of the big themes that comes through that i think though within the, the, the media broadcasting and news business it is about efficiency. It's not that they're getting loads more people to do all of these different things. They're trying to find ways for their teams to work more effectively together. Where if you have this core content that we can then repurpose, then you know let's do that and perhaps focus on fewer stories, but do them for more outlets. And so concentrate their resources rather than being spread and trying to avoid duplication of effort. You know, a lot of news organizations still have separate digital and you know, broadcast or even print or radio parts of their organization, depending on the scale of the organization. Um, so trying to find ways that they can bring that more closely together. And I think that's one of the challenges for you know, vendors like us is to help them work more efficiently, work more collectively together, make it easier to share content, to distribute content, as opposed to you know, siloed ways of working that I think a lot of them um, you know, have done just traditionally in the past because that's how they've evolved. Okay, another topic. You have been delving into the crisis of skills shortages in the media industry. Where are you seeing those shortages happening most acutely? I think it's really interesting. Um, so I think the, the pandemic changed a lot of things. I think as we all we all recognise. Um, so for example, Michael, you know, here we are, you and I doing this from home. You know, perhaps a few years ago, both of us would be in an office somewhere to uh, uh, to to do that. But I think the pandemic also prompted a lot of people to reevaluate what their working life was like. Um, and for a lot of people within the, the broadcast industry, or within the media industry more generally, I think it's an industry that's known for long hours. It's an industry that's known for um, potentially lots of travel, depending on you know what it is that you're that you're working on. Um, if you're working in something like sports, for example, there's lots of weekend working that's involved in things like that as well. So I think a lot of people reevaluated what they actually wanted to do. Um, so I think some people took the opportunity to perhaps leave the industry at, at that point and take a lot of experience um, away with them. And then at the other side, we then went through a period, of course, where um, you know, we were all, we were all working from home. You couldn't really get into an office to to go and work. So that opportunity for younger people to then gain the kind of skills that you get from working in an office environment, um, the connections that you make from people working in an office environment as well. I think we've gone through a period where you know that has has sort of happened as well. So I think what's happening now is opportunity for people coming through education. To go into what I would class perhaps as adjacent markets. So let's say I come through and I go in and I start off and I want to be a video editor, for example. I take that. Um, I then come work for you know two or three years at a college or university, come through and I have a, a degree and my degree is in, in video editing. But perhaps I look in the industry and 
rather than looking at working in the broadcast industry, perhaps I want to go into corporate. Perhaps I want to go into a, another form of content creation that isn't traditional broadcast or isn't traditional post-production because the opportunities have actually opened up. Because if you speak to any organization now, they will have some kind of content creation uh, department or involvement somewhere along the way. You know, if you look at pharmaceutical companies, for example, they oh, have marketing right. departments. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that what then has happened is that progression in some of those companies can also be quicker than going in, I'm going to join as a runner, I'm going to spend some time as a runner, then perhaps I'll be an assistant editor, and then if I do that for a number of years, maybe I can get you know, an editing game. And it might take me 10 years to get to where I want to get to. I think the other thing we also have to look at is people are investing a lot in their education. And as a consequence of that, they want to get some payback and are perhaps looking for that quicker than the return has been if you went into more traditional post-production, work your way through the system um, to actually get to that kind of level. So what does broadcast in particular need to do to kind of sexy itself up to people, potential candidates like that in those positions who are looking at all these adjacent industries and, and faster, quicker opportunities there? Do you think, it, do you have any advice for the broadcasters? I think there's, there's two separate aspects um, uh, to that. Uh, one is, well, quite a really interesting one was, um, uh, there was a college or university here in the UK that um, had a course, I can't remember the specific name of it, but say it was, you know, Learn Broadcast Journalism, for example. Let's, let's say it was that. And they basically changed the name of the course to be Become a YouTuber. And that instantly changed the view that people had of what this course could actually deliver for them. And they actually got quite a lot of applications for that. So branding has perhaps got a little, a little bit of it. You know, for example, if you're a, a post house um, and you're creating content, you're creating content not just for um, you know the main broadcast channels here, but you're probably creating content for Netflix, for um, you know Amazon Prime, and for all of the other um, you know Apple TV as well. But people don't necessarily younger people don't necessarily associate post-production with that they associate that with people are doing stuff for broadcast which is the tv my mum and dad watch as opposed to anything else right. but i think the, the wider thing within the industry and i think this is a theme that we see not just about new people coming in but also within the media industry itself is about diversity and inclusion it is about opening up the industry to perhaps people who have not traditionally thought that this was an industry for them trying to make those opportunities available and encourage that throughout all ranks within the industry itself. So I do think that there, there is a lot more that, um, that broadcasters can do to try to encourage people from different backgrounds. Because I think the other thing about that is that that then opens up different types of stories. And you can tell different types of stories because you know, if you have a more diverse workforce, a more diverse set of ideas to consider and to contemplate, you're ultimately going to create different types of stories from the ones that have been there before. So I think, you know, I think within the industry, there is a recognition um, that we need to do more about diversity and inclusion and encourage more people from more diverse backgrounds to come in. And ultimately, that's going to benefit the industry overall. Well, you just teed up my next question very nicely, Craig. So thank you for that, which is who's who's making real improvement on the DEI front? Who do you, you talk to a lot of different organizations. Who stands out to you 
as having been the most effective in reaching toward those goals? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a number of different groups in, in many different countries that, that are involved in this. I, I mean, I'll call out one episode of the podcast that we did with a woman called Carrie Wooten from an organization here in the UK called RISE. Um, and they have done an enormous amount of work in recent years of getting into schools um, and getting into sort of, you know, primary schools, high schools, as well as, you know, colleges and bringing in lots of mentors from the industry. And I think that's one of the really interesting things that they, that they have done, where they are pairing up, you know, younger people who are coming through perhaps at, at college or perhaps in, in, in school with people within the industry who are giving their time uh, to highlight to them what the industry is about. Because I think the other thing as well is that, as you and I know, there are so many jobs involved in the industry. A whole range of jobs that if you're outside the industry, you probably didn't even realize that, uh, that, that could be involved. So I think organizations like Rise, um, you know, they've done a lot of great work um, in there. And I think also, and I'll speak, speak specifically about here in the UK, um, you know, organizations like Channel 4, for example, they do a lot of work. Um, again, with their suppliers to try to encourage this. And I saw, in fact, some adverts um, just this week for, you know, internships, paid internships that some major organizations like, you know, CNN and others um, are now doing as well. Because, you know, the concept of an internship that's unpaid, you're almost instantly ruling people out by, yeah. by doing something like that. The UK is particularly well. bad about that. Well, I think everybody is, but but in the UK, I know that like publishing, it's always been unpaid. And you have it kind of yeah. assume you know, have to launch into that from a place to privilege. So paid internships is absolutely key. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Let me let me ask you finally about storytelling innovation. That's an area where <laughs> I'm always on the hunt to see where you find people pushing at the forms of, of video news storytelling. What have you seen in the last in the course of doing this podcast? that stands out to you as, as wow, that's some really, it's a really interesting new take on storytelling. I think the way that storytelling has, has, has changed is, and I think part of this is driven by social media and the expectations that people have around, around social media um, and also around developments in technology where some work that's done by mobile journalists who are using mobile devices because I think what that does is it brings an intimacy to storytelling that you don't get if you turn up with a big crew and they've got lots of cameras, they've got lights and they set up. It's, it's a slightly false, you know, kind of atmosphere that's created because of that. Mm -hmm. But I think when you see people do stuff where a lot of it's shot on mobile devices, lot, that I think it brings us you know, that intimacy into what into the kind of stories that you're telling. Because I think it breaks the barrier that the person that you're speaking to doesn't necessarily think that I'm on television here because there's a big camera and everything else. And so they then become more relaxed. That's one thing. So I think you can get people to, to perhaps open up a bit more. But I also think you're able to film in different ways. You know, a number of years ago, I think there was a lot of speculation about what you know, 360 video was, was going to do. It's not really developed very much because that was seen as a way of immersive you know, storytelling um, that, that can be done. Um, but I do think that those kind of developments, the way that you can try to get underneath the skin of a story, you know, I think the way that someone described it to me recently was this a lean back um, way of storytelling 
it's not really what people want now. They want something that's a bit more engaging. You know, I've, I've written a piece today, Michael, because it's, it's 35 years this month that I started working in, in newspapers um, back then, and I've been involved in the industry, you know, throughout all this time. And I've seen huge change through that period. And I think news in particular has become more personality driven for good or bad, what you may think about, um, about that. But I think to, to answer your question, people are looking for guides. They're looking for trusted people that they think will tell them innovative things that are interesting for them to know. You know, the BBC here um, have done some work with um, a reporter guy called Ross Atkins, who does these quite in-depth um, six, seven, eight-minute pieces about story, but he encapsulates a really complex story and really boils it down. And I think people are looking for those kind of things. It comes back to perhaps something we talked about right at the start. It's about trust and trust in news organisations. And I think that's really important. So that sort of lean forward, let me be the guide and the person that's going to take you through the story. I think that's where the real kind of innovation is, is, is going on just now. And I certainly find it really interesting to, to watch items like that. Okay, well, thanks for the pointing, pointing us in that direction. So what's next for the podcast, Craig? Another season? So we're about to take a season break, so I can get a little bit of a rest over the... Over the summer, we've got a couple more episodes to uh, to, to do, um, but yeah, the plan is uh, come uh, the um, autumn time or fall, as you guys would say in the, uh, in the Americas, um, we'll come back with a, with another season. I mean, one of the things that you know has been amazing is that you know people have been very giving of their time. Um, I'm sure you know, like yourself, when you first started, it can be a little bit challenging because people are like, well, what's it going to be about, and you know, what are you going to going to talk about. Um, but now, you know, it's a bit more straightforward because we have all of the episodes. We can approach people who perhaps have never heard us before. We can send them links to the episodes and they can hear, you know, what, it, what it's like. So, yeah, and fingers crossed, another season uh, starting in the fall, uh, running through next year and hopefully telling more interesting stories about the news and media business. Yeah, it does occur to me that we, sh we probably should have been numbering my episodes as we've been going along here. We sort of ad hoced our way into something that became a tradition. And it is great. You get a body of work. You get better and, you know, not better. You just get really great guests as you go along. So congratulations, Greg. 50 episodes from Making the Media, holding it down from Aberdeen, Scotland. Thanks for being here today. Thanks a lot, Michael. Great to talk to you again and hopefully see you in person sometime soon. So you can watch past episodes of Talking TV on tvnewscheck.com and on our YouTube channel. We're also avail available in audio-only form on all the major podcast platforms. We are back most Fridays with a new episode. Thanks for watching and listening to this one, and see you next time. A new episode of Talking TV is available most Fridays on tvnewscheck.com. You can also listen and subscribe on YouTube, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and Spotify.